Hello, Vitality Explorers. Dr. Alan Mishra here with another episode of the Vitality Explorer podcast. This week, we're going to do some really fun stuff, but we're going to start with a quote like we usually do. And here it is from Helen Keller. Quote, optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. All right. Now, on the Vitality Explorer podcast, as we always do, we try to enhance your physical, mental, social, and or spiritual well-being. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, please leave us a a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Please share this with your friends and or family to help enhance their vitality. Again, the goal is to take the friction out of staying vital. What you hear on the Vitality Explorer News podcast each week is my homework. I read 10, 15, sometimes 20 papers per week and try to provide you, the listeners and readers of the Vitality Explorer Substack site, with scientific information about how to lead your best possible life. So this week we're going to talk about how optimistic people live longer. We're going to talk about how mind games matter. And then I'm going to share with you five lessons learned in medical, in medical school and residency. And that last one is in the context of by the time you listen to this, I will have spoken at the University of Michigan Medical School uh, where I was invited back to give a talk about vitality. Remember our core concepts here on Vitality Explorers. Number one, vitality is a skill. Number two, vitality is a gift you give yourself by taking ownership over your decisions. So in that context, we're going to talk about this first post, which I think is an absolute paramount piece of information for us to review. So we're going to go a little slow. Optimistic prime people live 11 to 15% longer. All right. Optimism matters. And we're going to talk a little bit about how we can develop this superpower vitality skill. Remember, vitality is a skill. But let's start with a little bit of a definition of optimism and and why it matters. So optimists are hopeful. Optimists are confident about the future. And I'm going to put myself in this category as an indomitable optimist. I've been called that for most of my life, which um, I don't think is a pejorative term. I, I actually embrace it. But we don't deny or ignore challenges. I think that's very important. We're not people who are putting our head in the sand and saying that there isn't stuff to be concerned about. What we try to do, and not always, but what we try to do is approach difficult situations with a positive and hopeful attitude. And, and optimists in general possess, number one, a positive mindset. So that mindset can lead to higher levels of motivation and, this is important, higher levels of resilience. So optimists, again, number one, possess a positive mindset. Number two, are proactive and solution-oriented. So uh, again, uh, this is some research that I've come up with and I'm just sharing it with you on the podcast today. You can see more about it on the Vitality Explorer Substack site. But having a proactive and solution-oriented attitude is crucial because then you can think of a setback as temporary and something that you can overcome with perseverance. So one, possess positive mindset. Two, be or proactive and solution-oriented. Number three is critical. Have better relationships. So a positive outlook on life leads to a supportive environment and encourage collaboration. And this is critical 
when it comes to conflict or disagreements. So you have to kind of, you know, these all kind of flow together. So if you're having any sort of relationship, friend, family, spouse, in the workplace, understanding that there's a potential for this to get better, having a positive mindset, and looking at setbacks as temporary and things that can be overcome lead to better relationships. Now, the fourth and the fifth one are what we're going to explore a little bit more with some some science and a paper. But the fourth is that optimists enjoy more opportunities. They're more likely to take risks and seize opportunities. And that can lead to personal and professional growth. And the final one, very interesting data on this. Optimists live longer and arguably better lives. They enjoy less stress, suffer less disease, and literally live longer. Now, that's not my opinion, that last one. Uh, there's lots of data, and this is one where I want to lean into it. We're going to talk about this paper, and here's the, <clears throat> excuse me, here's the title of the paper. Quote, optimism is associated with exceptional longevity in two epidemiologic cohorts of men and women. So the study, this, rel- this big study, reviewed data from over 70,000 people that had been tracked since 1961. They, they gave the participants a questionnaire-based assessment of their optimism. They called it the life orientation test. And then they were followed across decades, and there was just one endpoint. Did you die? And here's the key finding of the paper. Quote, higher levels of optimism were associated with an extended lifespan, unquote. And specifically, women had, uh, with high levels of optimism, had a 15% longer life, and men had an 11% longer life. So that means that if you live into your 80s, that could be up to 10 or maybe even 15 years longer just because you're optimism, because of your optimism and in, in, to the approach to the world. So higher optimism is associated with greater odds also of achieving exceptional longevity, which they defined as being 85 or beyond. So women you know, with exceptional optimism had a 50% chance, better chance of living to 85 compared to women with low levels of optimism, and wait for it, men with exceptional optimism had a 70% chance of living to 85 or older. Wow. So the paper concluded, quote, we found higher optimism levels were associated with longer lifespan and greater likelihood of exceptional longevity. So here's the Vitality Explorer analysis and recommendation. Optimism is a scientifically verified vitality and longevity enhancer. Now, the data are pretty clear on that. The question I still have is, can we learn how to be optimistic or actually is it inherent in our nature? Because we've had this idea that, oh, my mindset or I'm either an optimist or I'm a pessimist. And I'm not an expert in this kind of data, but the data that I found online and in published peer-reviewed data, and again, you can look at the references on the Vitality Explorer Substack site, is that our perspective, optimistic, pessimistic, neutral, whatever it is, is only partially related to our genes. And that means we have some control over how we approach life. You can take it to you know, another level and say at, at least partially how we approach life, either optimistically, pessimistically, or neutral, is modifiable. And that means that we are responsible for developing our sense of optimism, if we can, to lead our most vital life. Now, I know that might be controversial, but I think it's important to state that again. 
we are at least partially under control of how we approach life. It's not all encoded in your genes. So that, that led me down another rabbit hole to say, okay, what are some specific actionable ways that we can enhance our optimism? And here's some suggestions that I found, and there's a video up on the Vitality Explorer Substack site that you can review. But here are six specific suggestions. Again, with Vitality Explorers and this podcast and the stuff up on the Vitality Explorer Substack site, we try to give you the information. We also try to give you specific actionable things. So here's some specific actionable ways that you can enhance your optimism. Number one, learn to control your reactions and responses. Hmm. Wonder if that, why would that be valuable? Number two, isolate instances, instances that aggravate you. Number three, see setbacks as temporary events. Number four, do not take failure personally. Number five, remain calm. Number six, look at the big picture and look at the long run. Again, I'm not an expert in this area in the development of optimism. I would really appreciate it if anybody who is, please post your comments or suggestions or data, data sets about how you can do that. I, I kick back a little bit to that paper that suggests that optimism is literally going to help you live 11 to 15% longer. So why shouldn't we, kind of like our muscles, why shouldn't we want to transform ourselves into a more optimistic kind of person? Uh, it seems also like a better way to live life. Um, I'll confess that I'm not always optimistic. We are all, all subject to our uh, circumstances to some degrees in terms of how we approach life and our attitudes. And, and I think, however, that we can try to be responsible for at least part of how we approach life. And that leads us to the second thing we're going to talk about here on Vitality Explorers this week. And that is fun or a specific type of fun where we talk about how engaging in playing games can enhance your health, happiness, and longevity. And the title of that post is Mind Games Matter. So, I, you know, we all need some time off. We all need some leisure time. But leisure is a complex human need. And it's obviously a vitality enhancer, right? So I don't think we need to be reminded of its value. But I think it's also important sometimes just to, to pause for a second and think, okay, why shouldn't we have more fun? Well, number one, or excuse me, why should we have more fun? Number one, leisure, whatever that is for you. Uh, we're going to talk about some specific definitions of that and why certain types matter. But leisure really helps us distract us from the stress of life. And number two, leisure can improve our overall well-being. Number three, as we've talked about, leisure by definition is fun. And who doesn't want a little more fun in their life? Well, a recent study reviewed different types of um, leisure in 20,000 people from 15 different countries and the investigation lasted six years. Here's the title, quote, mind-stimulating leisure activities, <clears throat> prospective associations with health, well-being, and longevity. Mind-stimulating leisure activities, prospective associations with health, well-being, and longevity. So the study evaluated different types of leisure activities in the context of health and wellness. And they, they kind of put them into three buckets. And these, again, were mind-stimulating leisure activities. I can think of a lot of activities, leisure activities, that aren't mind-stimulating. So with that stipulation, he, they defined three different versions. Number one, reading, which they called relaxed and solitary leisure. Number two is number and word games, which is a little more serious, but still solitary leisure. And number three, card and board games, which is serious and social leisure. I didn't discuss other things like 
you know, computer-based gaming or other leisure activities or non-mind-stimulating kind of leisure. So, or, or, you know, as we go through the rest of this, think about that. But what they really focused on, which I found fascinating, is reading. And they, they said reading unlocked, quote, a spectrum, excuse me, a wide spectrum of benefits. And the researchers found a clear and strong association with reading and overall wellness and, and also uh, a significant effect on depressive symptoms. Fascinating, right? So, so what, here's again a quote. There was a, quote, prospective association between reading and subsequent reduced chronic pain and better daily life functioning. Let me say that again. There was a prospective association between reading and subsequent reduced chronic pain and better daily life functioning. So think about reading as an intervention. They also found that reading included higher scores on specific well-being questions like the future looks great, I feel full of energy, I look forward to each day, and I feel like my life has meaning. So fascinatingly, they found that reading counterintuitively reduced loneliness. And the researchers speculated the practice of reading immersed the reader in a variety of different sort of virtual social situations. So you can get lost in the reading of, of a book and these mind-based social connections that you may have with the characters or perhaps even the story mitigated loneliness. And clearly further research is, is needed to investigate the specific and perhaps lasting value of being a consistent reader. Now, no, number and word games have been touted a lot to help protect, protect your brain. And they found that playing word games and number games had a positive effect on depressive symptoms. And, and you know, people had more feelings of energy and literally a lower risk of death by any cause. But, quote, occasionally engaging these active activities was prospectively associated with greater optimism and lower cognitive impairment. So these are kind of connected. This one we used to talk about with optimism, and we're talking about playing games to improve your overall well-being. Um, what they found with the next category, which is social leisure activities such as playing cards, chess, board games, that was prospectively associated with greater happiness, lower scores on a loneliness scale, and a lower risk of Alzheimer's disease. And that all makes sense, right? So if you're playing cards with your buddies, um, you're going to have a less risk of being lonely. You're also going to have a less risk of, um, of, of uh, Alzheimer's disease. What was weird, and this is what's strange about science sometimes, is that this type of activity was associated with a higher risk of cancer. And the reasons behind the higher risk of cancer were not known, but they're trying to understand. So again, I encourage you to, to look at the paper. Um, the paper concluded that mind-engaging leisure activities can be a, considered a health and well-being resource. The analysis I did on this really basically comes down to leisure having scientific data supporting its value for our overall well-being and health. And there was an impressive set of data supporting specifically reading in terms of lower levels of depression, higher levels of meaning, and a reduction of chronic pain. So I think, I think reading could be considered a stellar vitality enhancer. And the reduction specifically in pain absolutely needs to be better understood. Does reading just distract you from pain? Is there another mechanism by which reading reduces pain? But physicians, practitioners of other types need to be aware of this data 
and consider it in the context of other treatments they may be for their patients. Um, and other forms like other forms of leisure, mind stimulating leisure specifically, like word games, have value. Um, and and just trying to understand how to engage in leisure activities to improve your overall well-being was the meaning of this post. I'd encourage people to post their comments about this on the Vitality Explorer Substack site and any suggestions they have about this type of data or other data. And again, the title of the paper was Mind Stimulating Leisure Activities, Prospective Associations with Health, Well-Being, and Longevity. Now, we're going to finish with a post called My Top Five Lessons I Learned During Medical School and Residency. And um, this, is, this is quite fascinating because what, what I've been asked to do was speak at the University of Michigan Medical School about vitality. And I sort of came up with five different things that I, I think were, were kind of uh, important that I learned during my time at the University of Michigan Medical School. If you want to see pictures of what I look like, <clears throat> excuse me, a long time ago, you can see it on the Vitality Explorer Substack site. I found some pictures of when I was doing my orthopedic surgery residency that I embedded in the post. Um, but here are the five lessons I learned in no particular order. <clears throat> uh, one, thinking systematically calms you down. Two, challenging goals demand an authentic why. Three, friends make you a better physician. Four, when in doubt, choose the more difficult path. Five, pause when things go well to learn. So let's unpack a few of these. And what I found about these lessons, you know, they're typically meant for people in medical school or residency, but they really do apply to leading a vital life. And let's talk about that first one. Let's talk about thinking systematically calms you down. Now, when I was a second year medical student, I listened to a lecture that I, I didn't know that it would change my life. Now, how many lectures literally can change your life. But this one was a lifesaver for me and for, for my patients. And the lecture was about how to think systematically when trying to diagnose a patient. And the, the amazing professor suggested, um, you know, beginning with a series of bodily systems and, you know, you know, such as your nervous system, your vascular system, your endocrine system, your immune system and your musculoskeletal system when you're confronted as a physician with a baffling series of symptoms from your patient. You can run those symptoms through each one of those systems and then eventually you'll figure out the right diagnosis. Now this approach saved me dozens of times as a physician because I, you, know, you can have a tendency to panic if you get a whole series of symptoms that don't make sense. But when you start smashing them up about each one of those systems and you're very calm and very methodical about it, it can help lead you to the correct treatment, excuse me, the correct diagnosis and eventually the correct treatment. But it has absolutely alleviated my anxiety when I was trying to make a crucial decision either in or outside of the operating room for decades. So thinking systematically definitely calms me down and I should say leads to probably better outcomes. The second one is that challenging goals demand an authentic why. Now, finishing medical school, completing a residency, you know, almost any sort of demanding goal requires infinite sacrifice at times. It took me 10 years to complete medical school residency 
and then to finish with my sports medicine fellowship at Stanford. And during that time, my 20s evaporated and into my early 30s. And I was working sometimes 100, 120 hours a week in the hospital and then also time out of the hospital studying to become a surgeon. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I never wavered because I definitely did, but I never really quit. Excuse me, I didn't obviously quit, but I didn't quit because I knew my authentic why, all right, for what I was doing. So when you're getting annihilated, sometimes maybe your commitment can waver, but I didn't leave or do anything else because I absolutely knew in my bones, pun intended here, that I wanted to become a physician, an orthopedic surgeon, and eventually a sports medicine surgeon. So I wanted to and still want to use whatever talent I have to help my patients with my brain and my hands. So when you're trying to figure out how you're going to get through a very, very difficult time doing whatever you want to do in terms of a goal, you must know why you're doing it. And I have absolutely, for my entire career, known why I wanted to be a physician, and that has helped me get through difficult times. The third one, the third lesson I learned was that friends make you a better physician. Now, that's absolutely true. When you're training to become a physician, we need those people uh, inside and outside the hospital help us realize um, that life still exists, but we especially need them within our clinics or our hospitals because they can help you with challenging patients. They understand the, the challenges associated with being a physician and you can turn to them after you've been through a difficult time in the ER, the OR, and they can be like brothers and sisters in combat uh, when you're getting overwhelmed with the workload. And I've been very fortunate during my entire career to have friends around me um, that, that have helped love and support me and nourish and sustain me, and I absolutely wouldn't have survived without them. So if you're a physician or if you're in any challenging situation or any career, having people around you that help love and support you that are not just your family but beyond your family help you become a better version of whatever profession you choose to pursue. So the last two are kind of, I think, maybe the most important. And, th and that number four is when in doubt, choose the more difficult path. When in doubt, choose the more difficult path. So when I was in my residency, I had a, a guy who was a chief resident and he taught me that if I can't figure out what the right thing to do is, it is almost always the more challenging option. So if you're down to two options about what you're gonna do, he suggests I develop the discipline to choose the more difficult path if I wasn't sure. Now, that axiom was supposed to apply to diagnosis and treatment of patients, but its wisdom applies far beyond medicine. So when in doubt, choose the more difficult path. The final one is to pause when things go well. Now, we, we definitely kind of revisit things when they don't go well, but this little story is about something you know, when we can learn how to pause when things go well. So I, it was towards the end of my orthopedic surgery residency. I had uh, completed a complex four-hour surgery, and the attending was this gigantic bear of a man. He was he had these mammoth size nine hands. Stellar surgeon, but he demanded, that's one of the reasons why he was a stellar surgeon. He demanded perfection in the operating room. And it was an honor to work with him and learn from him. So we'd finished this this case, I'm in the recovery room writing the orders for the post-op patient to return to the ward when this gigantic size nine paw slash hand grabbed me on the shoulder. And he basically growled and said, hey, Dr. Mishra, have you reviewed the x-rays yet? 
Uh, no, sir, I haven't. He demanded then that I come to the conference room when I had finished my orders to complete, uh, to, to kind of look at the post-operative x-rays. And when I got to the conference room just a few minutes later, Dr. Bear, that's obviously not his name, was carefully studying the films. And then he kind of turned with almost just barely one eye, looked at me and he said, what do you think of the surgery you just completed? He kind of growled under his breath. And I intently was staring at the x-rays. The implants that we put in were correctly positioned. The alignment of the leg looked excellent to me. And I knew that I couldn't equivocate, uh, but I still thought that I was missing something. So I decided to be honest, which is always a great policy. And I kind of equivocated and I said, I think the x-rays look okay, sir. And he kind of turned at me and he goes, no, they do not. I'm <laughs> sorry, he actually used my name. So he said, like, no, they do not, Dr. Mishra. They look awesome. And he kind of cackled and laughed. And then I said, he said something like, you know, hey, we just did a kick-ass surgery, but we're going to sit here and review every single step we took so that we can do it again the next time we do this. So we spent the next hour reviewing every single detail of the preparation for the surgery and the execution of the complex surgery. Remember, everything had gone really well, but he taught me how to reinforce how well you were doing and to try to do it perfectly again. And that lesson that I learned that day helped me improve as a surgeon because every single time I operate on a person, I try to review and re-review beforehand and then try to understand something to learn regardless of how easy or how, how difficult the case would be. And now I have the honor of teaching residents and fellows how to see patients in the office and how to take care of patients in the operating room. And there are there's much to learn from both cases. So this isn't just obviously about surgery. This is about anything you do in life. Pause when something goes well to learn. So let's review those five lessons I, I learned again. Number one, thinking systematically calms you down. Number two, challenging goals demand an authentic why. Number three, friends make you a better physician. Number four, when in, when in doubt, choose the more difficult path. And number five, pause when things go well to learn. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this week's Vitality Explorer podcast. We've talked about how optimism um, can help us live longer. We've talked about how mind game matters. And then we just finished going over the top five lessons I learned during medical school and residency. If you're enjoying this, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please share this with your friends and family to enhance their vitality. You can also subscribe to the Vitality Explorer Substack site where there's over 350 scientific posts about how to improve your physical, mental, social, and or spiritual well-being. Remember, vitality is a skill and vitality is a gift you can give yourself by taking ownership over your decisions. And until next time, get out there and dare to be vital. Thank you very much for listening. Have a wonderful week.